encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum, Nahum chapter 1. If you're not sure where Nahum is, you can open up to the Gospel of Matthew and then just turn back to the left, the Old Testament, about six books, and you'll find the book of Nahum after Jonah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. This morning we continue in our series on anger. However, I'm going to be looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective this morning as I will focus on it from God's side. We'll take a moment to look at the anger of God. And so my message will be a little more topical than the expositional sermons that you may be used to this morning. We'll begin in Nahum and then we'll look several other places in Scripture as well. I encourage you to follow along as I read from Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. This is the word of our God. Let us pray. Father, we bow before you in humility this morning. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. May we see Christ this morning, and may we respond in a way that would honor you. For the sake of your name, for your glory alone we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder how many of you remember the story of Graham Staines. Graham was a missionary to India. And near the end of January 1999, he and his two young sons, Philip, who was 10, and Timothy, who was 7, had gone to a Christian camp in the jungle of India, a camp where Graham had been serving. But this night would be unlike any other night. For this night, around midnight... Graham and his two young boys would be mobbed by a group of militant, radical Hindus. They would be trapped inside their vehicle, and they would be burned alive. And when their three bodies were recovered, they were discovered clinging to one another. Graham had spent nearly 35 years of his life serving in India, particularly working among the tribal poor and those with leprosy, and laboring to translate the Bible into the language of the people. But now he and his young sons had been brutally murdered because of their zeal for Christ. And I wonder, perhaps you're hearing that story for the first time this morning, but I wonder, how do you react to that story? What effect does it have on you? What emotions are aroused within you? Perhaps you're filled with sorrow 
and a sense of loss as you consider the agony, the torture, the pain that Graham and his sons had to endure in their final moments. Or perhaps you're filled with compassion and sympathy towards Graham's wife, Gladys, his daughter, Esther, as now they have to deal with this terrible loss. Or maybe you're filled with a burning anger, a righteous indignation towards those who would commit such unspeakable evil against the people of God. But how does God react to this? No, God was not taken by surprise. It was part of his plan. And I don't pretend to know all the reasons that this happened. But I do know that God reacts towards any sin with a righteous wrath, with vengeance. In verse 2 of Nahum 1, three times the word for vengeance is used. As if to shout out that God is a God of vengeance who takes wrath on his foes. So God responds to any sin with a wrath that is both dreadful and glorious. And if we are serious this morning, if we are serious about following and worshiping the one true God as he is revealed to us in his word, and not some convenient, comfortable idol that we have constructed in our own minds, then we must deal with this attribute of God. We must meditate on the wrath of God. And I believe that as we do that, we will be compelled to respond in at least three ways. First of all, if we have a proper understanding of the wrath of God and all its dread and all its fury, we will be compelled to repent. To properly understand the wrath of God, we must see that it is dreadful in both its scope and its severity. It is dreadful in its scope in that all mankind justly and rightly deserves God's wrath. Every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl, whoever lived or whoever will live or who is living right now begins life under the wrath of God. Ephesians 2 tells us that we, all of mankind, were by nature children of wrath, by nature of who we are. We are born under the wrath of God, under his righteous wrath. Romans 5 says that therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And later Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And what he's saying there is if you sin, if you are a sinful person, which all men everywhere are, then death is your judgment. Death is our judgment. Death is not just something that happens to me. Death happens to me because I am a sinner. Death is our universal judgment. It is what we all deserve. And yet there is something far worse than just death and dying. And that is dying in your sin. Hebrews 9 tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes judgment. All of us will die. All of us will face judgment. No one escapes. All of us will have to give an account before God. The wrath of God is dreadful in its scope. It encompasses all of mankind, but it is also dreadful in its severity. For if you die in your sins, you will suffer the punishment of hell, which is eternal. The Gospel of Mark describes hell as the unquenchable fire. The fires of hell will never go out. The point of that is to say soberly and terribly 
that if you go there, there will be no relief forever and ever. Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord forever. In Revelation it says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever, ever, and they have no rest day or night. When God finally pours out his wrath upon sinners who have earned it, sinners who deserve it, and we all deserve it, but when God finally pours it out, those who receive it will suffer for eternity. Their suffering will never end. Charles Spurgeon helps us here when he says, the wrath of God does not end with death. This is a truth which the preacher cannot mention without trembling nor without wondering that he does not tremble more. The eternity of punishment is a thought which crushes the heart. You have buried the man, but you have not buried his sins. His sins live and are immortal. They have gone before him to judgment, or they will follow after him to bear their witness as to the evil of his heart and the rebellion of his life. The Lord God is slow to anger. But when he is once aroused to it, as he will be against those who finally reject his son... He will put forth all his omnipotence to crush his enemies. See, it's not just any wrath that we face, that we deserve. It is the wrath of the omnipotent, almighty God. The omnipotent, almighty, infinite king of kings. Listen again to Nahum 1, verses 5 and 6. The mountains quake before him. And the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. This is what every single one of us here today and throughout the world deserves. And it's not a cruel and unusual punishment. It's only so severe because it's exactly what we deserve, what we have earned, what we have stored up for ourselves because of our sin. On this day, July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And God used that to spark an awakening, to lead people to repentance. And his words are still true today. Listen to some of what he said. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked against you as much as against many of the damned who are already in hell. You hang by a slender thread. With the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done and nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God 
and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Perhaps Edwards had in mind Psalm 7 when he penned those words. Psalm 7 declares this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God is a righteous judge, a God who feels wrath every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This is the reality of what we face in our sin. Our only hope is to repent. The only proper response to the wrath of God is to repent to repent and turn to the Lord, that our sins might be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. But you know, there is hope in these words of Psalm 7 as well. For it says, if a man does not repent. That means that if we do repent, then God will turn his sword, he will turn the arrow of his wrath away from you. But the arrow will still fly. It's just that it will no longer be directed at you, but instead it will be turned and directed towards his son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place. Jesus Christ, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus Christ, who in himself, in his body, bore our sins... And his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. We were all straying like sheep. But now if we repent we can return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Paul says in Colossians that God made us alive. God made us alive when we were dead in our sins. He made us alive together with Christ. Having forgiven all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood opposed to us. With its legal demands. This he set aside. Nailing it to the cross. Don't miss that. Do not miss the wonder of this. That God took the record of your sins. That made you a debtor to wrath. And instead of holding them up in your face. And using them as a warrant. To send you to hell. Which is what you deserve. Instead of that. He has put them. In the palm of his son. And nailed them. To the cross. If only you will repent. Christ died in the place of his people. He suffered the dreadful wrath of God. It was poured out upon him. For his people. For those who recognize that they deserve. God's dreadful wrath. And cry out to God for mercy. May the knowledge of God's wrath. His awful dreadful wrath. Lead us to repentance. And may it deter us from sin. There is also a glorious aspect to the wrath of God. And we will focus on that in our final two points. Our second point is this. If we have a proper understanding of the wrath of God, it will lead us to rest. Not only to repent, but to rest. To rest in the justice of God. To rest in his vengeance. To rest in his righteous wrath. For he will make all things right. He will right all wrongs. Most of you have probably been wronged at one time or another. Perhaps many of you in a very serious and painful way. 
by somebody who has never apologized, who, are, who has never done anything to make it right. In fact, they may continue to hurt you over and over again to make it worse and worse. And one of the hindrances to letting go of your anger and your hurt in response to that is the justified conviction that you may have that justice ought to be done. And you feel that if you just let it go, then justice will never be done. And so you hold on to your anger. And what started as a righteous indignation will quickly turn in to sinful bitterness and resentment. As you play the story over and over again in your mind, and you hold on to the hurt and the resentment, it builds as you repeat in your mind, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. It was so wrong. It was so wrong. How can he be so happy when I am so miserable? It is so wrong. Or perhaps it's not a wrong that was done to you that has caused your anger. But perhaps it is wrong done by those who will mock the holy God, who will make a mockery of his ways, those who would persecute God's people and burn alive a missionary and his two young sons, those who would kill innocent children, those who would seek to force their immorality upon you. But whether it is anger for God's glory or anger directed toward those who have hurt you, Paul's words in Romans 12 are given to us by God to lift that burden from us, to lead us to rest. In Romans 12, echoing the words of Nahum chapter 1, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What do we do with our righteous indignation? What do we do with our anger towards those who have wronged us? We must lay it down. We must lay down the burden of anger. Now laying it down doesn't mean that justice will not be done. It doesn't mean that what happened to you was not wrong or that you will not be vindicated or that they will have gotten away with it. No. When we rest in God's wrath, it means we lay down the burden of vengeance. And we leave it where it belongs, in the hands of the righteous judge, the true judge, for he will pick it up. We leave it to God. We do not seek revenge. And in this way, the wrath of God can bring us comfort. It's actually the hope of the believer. It's what we can set our hope on, for he will deal with the wrongs. We can let go of our bitterness. We can trust God to make our wrongs right. And we don't have to be about the business of making it right. Instead, we can be about the business of loving our enemies. We can see the evil in our world, and instead of responding in kind, we rise above it to do good. Instead of being overcome by evil, we overcome evil with good. This is what Gladys Staines did, who was now a widow. Graham's wife, in the days after that tragedy... Her response was printed in every paper in India. And this is what she said. I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter. Neither am I angry. But I have one great desire. That each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. She could rest 
and the justice of God. And at the same time, plead for mercy for those who had wronged her. So not only can we rest in God's justice, not only can we leave it to him, but even as we do that, if we truly understand the dreadful wrath of God that we have been saved from ourselves, then we will plead to God to be merciful, to forgive those who have wronged us. This is what Christ did on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It's what Gladys Staines did. And we do this because we remember that we deserve that same wrath, that we deserve that same awful vengeance of God. The only difference is that Christ has bore it in our place. We remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We remember the words of John Bradford, that English reformer and martyr, who as he saw a criminal being taken to his death for his crimes, he cried out, there but for the grace of God go I. So as we rest, we plead with God to be merciful, not only to ourselves, but to those who are yet under his wrath, his vengeance, even towards those who have wronged us. And we do not hold it against them. We forgive as we have been forgiven, and we leave it to the hands of the righteous judge, even as we plead with him to be merciful towards them. Well, finally, the wrath of God also leads us to rejoice. And it leads us to rejoice because it magnifies the mercy of God. We are better able to understand, we are better able to cherish and to treasure the mercy of God when we understand the wrath of God. Because mercy really doesn't make any sense unless you understand the infinite wrath that you have been saved from. But I'm afraid that in our culture today we have forgotten the wrath of God. And so we have forgotten how much we need God's mercy. I wonder how many of you remember the name Al-Zakari. It was just over a year ago that this terrorist leader, a leader of the Al-Qaeda terrorist group, was put to death by the U.S. military. Two 500-pound bombs were dropped from over seven miles away, guided by lasers, guided by satellites, upon the very house in which he was staying. Al-Zakari was an evil, vile terrorist. He would kidnap innocent civilians and behead them and record it. He would orchestrate suicide bombings. It's men like this that put our soldiers in danger. Men like this that put members from our own congregation, like Jonathan DeVries and Joseph Rudy, in danger. And I wonder... If you heard that news last June, how you responded? How did you react to that story, the death of a terrorist? Did you think, like many of the conservative commentators did in the aftermath of that, did you think, what justice has been done? Two 500-pound bombs. And then it came out that perhaps he survived the initial bombing. And so some were reveling in the fact that perhaps he was alive And the last thing that he saw on earth was the U.S. soldiers coming to his house. And they reveled in the justice of it all. A man so vile and evil that he would behead people. I admit that there are times when I respond like that. When you see somebody who deserves justice and they finally get it, you almost delight in it. And yet, if that is how we respond, then we have forgotten the dreadful condition that we ourselves are in. 
while reveling in the death of a terrorist, we should be speechless and shuddering that we stand in a much worse condition than dying from two 500-pound bombs. The God of the universe holds his infinite, not little 500-pounders, his infinite eternal wrath over your head this very moment, and you are oblivious to it. Do you realize that the difference between Al-Zakari and me, the difference between the terrorist and me, the only difference before the face of God who demands perfect righteousness and holiness, the only difference is that I have been mercied and I've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only difference between the terrorist and you The only difference between Jesse Wise and you, between David Ludwig and you, between David Koresh and you, between Ted Bundy and you, between Jeffrey Dahmer and you, between Adolf Hitler and you, between the Virginia Tech killer and you, between you fill in the blank with whoever it is that you think is the most repulsive, vile person on earth that could never be forgiven. The only difference between them and you, between them and me, is the mercy, the undeserved mercy of Christ. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Before the, grace, before the face of God, apart from his righteousness and mercy, we are equally as vile. And we deserve just as much wrath as the terrorists. And people ought to revel in our deaths. Do we think in those terms at all? Or have we created a God of our own image, of our own making, Have we brought God down so low and trivialized him so much and been influenced by the God-ignoring error so much that mercy doesn't seem like a big deal? Do we have any sense? Do we have any sense of our desperate need before the face of God? The only one who can help us is Christ. And that is only if he will be merciful to us. Well, on the other hand, I wonder if we have become so familiar, if those of us in the church, if we have become so familiar with the mercy and the grace of God that we cease to be overwhelmed by it, that we cease to be amazed by it. Psalm 108 verse 4 says, Your mercy is great above the heavens. Your mercy is higher than the heavens. The heavens, our solar system, Seven billion miles across. It's just a small part of our galaxy, the Milky Way, which has over 200 billion stars, of which our sun is a small one. The Milky Way galaxy is over 600,000 trillion miles across. And it is only one of perhaps 100 galaxies that we are aware of. And God, when he tries to put his mercy in terms that finite creatures can understand, he says it's higher than that. That speaks to the infiniteness of God's great mercy, but it also speaks to the greatness of our need, that we would need a mercy that is that high. I pray that God would give us some sense of our desperate need of his mercy. We need to live every day And the consciousness, the awareness of our desperate need of mercy. And the only way that we can honestly do that is if we understand the depth of God's wrath. 
and how much we deserve that. This is the reality that the biblical writers call us to every day. The biblical writers are absolutely consumed with the reality that the children of God have been mercied. They have received mercy. And they proclaim that that reality should be the most profound waking thought that we have. That it should profoundly shape us throughout all of our lives. You know, when we understand the dreadfulness of God's wrath, when we understand what we deserve, the death and judgment that we deserve, right now, this very moment, the fact that any of us take one more breath should be shocking to us. The fact that the holy God would tolerate for a mere nanosecond a sinful creature should be shocking to us. But today in our culture, what we found shocking is that anybody dies or that a loving God would send people to hell. How twisted have we got it. We've got it all backwards. God tells us in his word that if you die in your sin, you face death and judgment. And our only hope, our only hope is to repent to turn to Christ, to receive the amazing offer of forgiveness that is only available because God did pour out his wrath, but he poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ, in our place. That amazing mercy should have a profound impact on us every waking moment of every day. This is the mercy that Paul appealed to in Romans 12. He said, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service. The mercy of God had a profound impact on Graham Staines. As he gave his life in missionary service in India. It had a profound impact upon his wife Gladys and his 13-year-old daughter Esther. Put yourself... And their shoes. How could you not react with anger and bitterness and resentment towards those who had burned your husband and children alive? To those who had burned your father and brothers alive. The only way that you cannot react with bitterness and anger is if you have come to cherish mercy. If you've understood that you've been brought from the depths of God's wrath to the heights of his mercy. Now Esther, the 13-year-old daughter, her response was this, in response to losing her father and her brothers. She said, listen to this, all you teenagers. She said, I praise the Lord that he found my father worthy to die for him. Her focus was not on what she looked like, what she wore, how popular she was, whether or not she had a boyfriend. Focus was on the mercy of God. This truth also had a profound impact on John Bradford as he was finally taken to the stake to be martyred, to be burned alive as well. He was chained with another young man and just as they were about to be burned, he turned to this young man and he said, Be of good comfort, brother. For tonight we shall have a merry supper with our Lord. Do you see how ironic that is? Two men who deserved to suffer the eternal torments of the unquenchable fire of hell 
Instead, we'll suffer for a little while. Hell on earth. But they can look beyond that because they have been mercied. They can look beyond that and see that in just a moment, though they deserve God's wrath for eternity, they will spend eternity delighting in the fullness of that mercy before the face of their God. You have a choice before you this day. God has not yet poured out his final wrath upon you. Right now, all of us are under a death sentence, but we enjoy a temporary stay of execution, and that temporary stay, God's kindness, is meant to lead us to repentance. So so the choice before you today is this. One day you will face God's judgment. You will stand before God. And on that day, you can either face him as your righteous judge and have the full fury of his wrath poured out upon you for eternity, or you can repent and you can turn to Christ and rest in him and rejoice in his mercy. And on that day, you can receive him as your portion and your treasure and your savior forever and receive the mercy of God. Luke 18, Jesus tells us a story. And I close with this. Two men went down to the temple to pray. One of them, a Pharisee, a religious leader. The other, a tax collector, the refuse of society, a sinner. The Pharisee prays and he exalts himself and he thanks God that he is not like the tax collector, that he's not like the terrorist. And the tax collector beats on his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that the tax collector is the one who goes down to his house justified. Do not refuse this mercy this morning. For if you do, death is absolutely certain, and so is judgment. Let those who have ears to hear, hear the word of God. And let those who have heard it rejoice and worship the one true living God. And may you go forth unable to contain your wonder at the mercy of God. May it overwhelm you every waking moment of every day. And may you never cease to be amazed at it. Glory be to our most gracious God. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts not only your dreadful wrath, but also your glorious mercy. And I pray that we would bow before you, that we would be transformed forever because of it. And that we would go forth singing your praises, declaring your glory, so that all the world may know this God. And they may know you in your mercy and be spared from your wrath. We pray this for the sake of your name and your kingdom. And we pray it in the matchless name of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.